We're in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, and the title this morning is The Father's Discipline. We're moving into the final chapters of 1 Corinthians and our, our study through the book. Our teaching team is meeting this month. We're going to talk through where we believe the Lord wants us to go next. So you could be praying about that for us, please. We have a lot of options, uh, trying to decide where we want to go as a church in terms of content. But in our study to this point, we've, we've spent a little time already on communion or the Lord's table. And, and that issue plays pretty prominently, prominently here in this section of Scripture. But what I want us to do is focus on something else in the text this morning. It's easy to read the previous passages and uh, that we've unpacked and, and focus on the immediate issues. That's, that's actually not a wrong approach. That's a process called exegesis. Ex means out of. Uh, it's out of the text. When, when we go to the text, we, we let the te- text speak for itself. And out of the text, we arrive at the meaning of what is being said. That's a, that's a good way to study the Bible. That's the right way to study the Bible. And at Emmaus Road, we're always going to strive to do good exegesis as part of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're not disregarding that this morning. <coughs> but there is something else happening here in this passage. Paul's been giving praise where praise is due, and now he's giving a warning where a warning is due. And he has the authority to do that because he's one of the Lord's apostles. And that word apostle is from the Greek apostolos. It means... Uh, He is a messenger. He's sent with a message. He's been given authority as someone sent by a king or an authority, right? He's been given delegated authority. And the Corinthian church had been commended by Paul for adopting and embracing, we talked about last week, a particular tradition that he introduced to the church. We we talked about uh, that tradition pertaining to headship and propriety. And he encouraged them and he praised them for consistently demonstrating the reality of the Trinity and also the concept of being under authority to the watching culture around them. That was what that was all about. It was to demonstrate a theological, spiritual reality to a watching culture. But here in this passage, starting in verse 17, Paul switches gears, and now he's going to deal with the antithesis of praise. He has some correction to give to the Corinthian church, and it comes with a stern rebuke. And the issue at hand pertains to what we call communion or the Lord's Supper, which we just partook in together. Um, But you need to know that in that day, in that culture, at that time, it was a very different experience in the early church from what we're accustomed to. Their version was commonly called a love feast. And the way in which the Corinthian believers were behaving in the context of that love feast did not reflect the heart of God for his people. And so Paul is rebuking them. And as we study this text, we need to remember Paul had a very real and powerful authority over the church, but his authority was, again, is delegated from God. It's not ultimate authority. It's not a direct authority. Paul is an apostle. He's sent from God. Therefore, Paul had delegated authority. He could rebuke people in the church, or he, even when, if necessary, if someone was unrepentant and in sin, he had the power to expel them from the congregation. But that's as far as Paul's delegated authority went. But God has, uh, God has absolute authority. That means that God is the one with not indirect, but direct authority, not delegated, but direct authority to punish his children, not just scold them. 
He's not our grandparent. Your grandparents know. It's like, I wish I could spank my grandkids sometimes, right? You can't. You don't get to. You had, you had that opportunity when you were raising your kids. God is our father. God's the parent. He doesn't just scold, but, but he, sometimes he chastises. Sometimes he punish, punishes. And that should instill in the church a holy fear of the Lord. There are things that God says in his word that are for the church as a warning to us. Do not think that because you prayed a prayer when you were 12 years old that you can live like hell. There's the discipline of the Lord is a real thing. Proverbs 10, 17, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. You don't want to be that guy. You go two chapters further into Proverbs, Proverbs 12, 1, says whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. I love that verse. It's just so direct. It's just right out there. You, you can't stand being corrected about things. The Bible says you're stupid. You, you, don't, you don't embrace correction. You don't love the truth. Uh, Eliphaz is speaking to Job in Job chapter 5, and he says this about the Lord. He said, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. It might be painful for a season, but it's for our good. We'll save some of the other passages for later, but rest assured, there are many passages about the Lord's discipline in the Bible. He's a good daddy, and good daddies sometimes have to punish or discipline their children. So let's, let's just talk about that for a second. Uh, most of the wisdom that I have concerning the topic of discipline as it relates to the role of an earthly father comes directly, uh, well, it comes from God indirectly through my wife. The wisdom that I have about disciplining kids is really mostly through Jen. It's from God to her to me. Because I grew up in a home that our discipline was, was not godly. Now, my, my parents are very different people than they were when I was a little kid. But um, nevertheless, as a daddy, I became the primary disciplinarian in our home. And if we stop and think about it for just a little bit, most of us will come to the conclusion that we did not experience consistent discipline that reflected the heart of God as our Father. Very few families seem to get this right consistently, and some that do, we're, we're grateful for. Um, but sometimes the discipline that's carried out in a family is overly punitive, or it's done in anger. Boy, that was my problem as a young dad. I just discipline out of anger. Jen, Jen had to had to talk to me about that. We, we, had a, we had a lot of prayer and a lot of talking about why that's a bad thing. Sometimes the immaturity of the parent, maybe, or maybe better said the insecurity of the parent, overshadows the discipline. A parent can punish because they're embarrassed by their child, and that's a bad reason if the embarrassment is not rooted in anything real or substantial, but just merely perception in, in their own insecurity. There are several ways that we as fallen human beings go astray in our attempts to discipline the children that God has entrusted to us, but not so with God. He only ever disciplines perfectly. The discipline of the Lord is really the central piece of this passage this morning, I believe, and not a secondary consideration. And it's something that we don't really like to talk about in the American church. So instead of shying away from it this morning, we're just going to dive in head first because you know me, right? We're just going after this. So 1 Corinthians 11, um, we'll start with 17 and let's read down to 19 here. 
<clears throat> but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So the issue at hand was something the early church referred to as a love feast. The way that they would take communion was typically in a larger setting where the whole church was gathered for an actual meal together. And if you grew up in the South like I did, we'd call it an all-church potluck. And, and it was good eating. It was just really good. Um, those are great times of feasting on lots of food and enjoying one another's company. Everybody would just eat their fill and would sit around and chat. And the kids would be in and out the door, going outside to play, coming back inside. And this is like a bazillion degrees in the south anyway. I'd come back in and cool off, I'm in and out. It was, it was just good times. But the love feasts at Corinth were marred by divisions among the members of the body and by selfishness and by drunkenness. Now, this is a church gathered together and people are getting wasted. That's pretty dysfunctional. And we've said all along, Corinth puts the fun in dysfunctional. So um, Paul says there are divisions among you. And then he points out that these factions actually serve the purpose to show which believers are actually true believers or actually genuinely saved. Now, if you came up in public school like I did, uh, these, are, these are things we call cliques. It's one thing to have a close group of friends that you relate to and love and enjoy. There's nothing at all wrong with that. But it's another thing to shun other people or judge them as unworthy or undesirable for relationship because they don't fit in. Uh, whatever that means. Like, what do you know about fitting in when you're 14? You just feel a bunch of social pressure to conform, right? The Corinthians were, were um, still emotionally and mentally in junior high. And this continues to be the case in many churches today. Follow me down the rabbit hole so we can see this clearly. And then we can, and then we can just reject this whole thing, right? Because the public school system, uh, many, many of us, most of us maybe grew up in, is designed to disassociate a child from his or her parents by keeping them eight to 10 hours a day. And the, the family ceases to be the primary source of identity and acceptance and the peer group at the school replaces the family. Now, if you don't believe me, you think I'm just, this is overreach. That's wild accusations. Read John Dewey. You ever, some of you young people don't know that what the Dewey decimal system is, but if you're my age or older, you're like, oh yeah, I remember having to go to the library and go to the stinking card catalog and flip through, try to find the corresponding number and then go like, which shelf is this on? And then finally, finally, you know, like 30 minutes later, you got your book, right? It's not like the way we do it now. And John Dewey invented the Dewey Decimal System. He's also one of the founders of the modern public school system in the United States. John Dewey was an avowed communist. And if you read his writings, you will see he's very open and very clear about his intent that the school would replace the family as a source of identity for children. So, so this is the reality. The family ceases to be the primary source of identity and acceptance, and the peer group in the school replaces that. And it's for good reason, then, that we call our high schools our alma mater. In Latin, that phrase means nurturing mother. The social system creates a hierarchy based on performance and popularity, not genuine love and acceptance. 
And every child subjected to that system grows up with a lens through which we see other people in relationships. It carries on into college. It carries on into the workplace. And unless the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks that off a person and replaces that system with the love of Jesus, then people just continue to think that way until their dying breath. Now, sometimes people get saved, but they carry that worldview into the church with them. And it takes some time and and some concerted effort and lots of God's word washing over a person uh, to, to overcome that mindset and to renew one's mind in the Lord. It's possible. But some, so, so, so this is why you see some churches get clicky. That's unhealthy. That's not good. This was the case at Corinth, resulting in divisions, which Paul said were not good, except that they, they only served to show who was really regenerated and who wasn't. So verse 20, he goes on. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. In your eating, each one of you goes ahead with your own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So let me, let me read you again. Since our, we're using a southern church potluck as our template, hear this from somebody's grandma seeing what Paul describes. Here, here you go. This, this is right out of my childhood. Honey, when we get together, everybody brought their casseroles, whatever else they get, grab from the Piggly Wiggly on the way to church. It's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. Y'all just dive right in without even saying grace or waiting on anybody to even get in the room. Them babies over there in the corner didn't get enough to eat. Uncle Henry, he's over in that corner, passed out drunk from the communion wine. If you're going to do that mess, do it at home. Don't bring that mess in here. This is God's house. You must hate church to be acting a fool like that. Jesus is going to whoop your bottom. You better shape up. That's Paul. That's Paul. That's my grandmother. Their focus was not on honoring the Lord Jesus or one another. And verse 21 makes it clear they were slaves to their own appetites. They couldn't even wait for everybody to get in the room, but they just dove right into eating. Now, this is a good time to remember what Jesus said in Mark 7, 18 and 19. It's not what a person puts in them that makes them unclean. Food doesn't make you unclean. It's what comes out of a person. In other words, food, food doesn't make you unclean, but the way you act towards others makes you unclean. It's the sin in your heart that makes you unclean. And I was reminded this moment of, of, of a moment this week when uh, there was a time when I acted this way. It was, it was really embarrassing for me to think about, even just in the privacy of my own office. I remember we'd been in Romania. I, I was in Romania for three weeks. I had gone ahead and, uh, with a church team, and we were um, doing a lot of preaching and ministry in Cluj, which is uh, in the northern part of Romania and in, in actually in the, in the province of Transylvania. And I'm constantly looking for Dracula, right? And then, and then two weeks, uh, I went back south to Bucharest, which is the capital, and met our team of college students coming in to, to do ministry in orphanages because Romania has had a policy for decades that they didn't want the world to know how many orphans they had, so they don't let anybody outside the country adopt their kids. And uh, so the, the orphanages are filled even today. And so we were just spending a couple of weeks with kids, just loving kids, playing soccer badly, um, getting beat by five-year-olds. It was embarrassing. But at the end of that trip, I just really wanted to be with my family, just really wanted to get home. And so we flew from, uh, from Bucharest to New York 
and had a connection to Atlanta. And, um, and I remember being at JFK and not really caring a lot whether or not the rest of the team made it to the plane. I'm like, I got to get to that plane because I got to get to my family. And I'm the, I'm the, I'm the leader of the team. I'm, I'm supposed to be shepherding and helping them get from place to place. And, and I'm you know, supposed to come in last, make sure everybody's got to the gate. Everybody's on the plane. We're all going to get there together. And I wasn't thinking about that at all. And I, and I just thought about that experience again and, and was really embarrassed by that attitude of me first. Me first. I don't care right now about other people getting home even. If they miss their plane, they'll, they'll, get, a, they'll get a connecting flight. Somebody will put them on another plane. I just want to get back to my family. I just remember thinking that, going, man, Lord, thank you for sanctifying me. And it's a process. It's a process. And sometimes it's, t- it's a one step forward and two steps back but it's a process. And so my attitude was similar to that of many of the Corinthians at this moment in, in this example. It was a me first attitude. Scripture says they were slaves to their own appetites. It was me first because they're, they're dishonoring one another in the church. And as they're dishonoring one another in the church, they're ultimately dishonoring Jesus, who's our head. They're dishonoring the Lord Jesus Christ when they gather for these love feasts. But it gets worse. You go on, you see they're getting drunk. Look at verse 21, the second half of 21. It says, one goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or or, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Paul had something to say about drunkenness when he wrote to the Ephesian church. And in chapter 5, he says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul has saved the most damning indictment for last, humiliating those who have nothing. We, we, we look at the drunkenness, we go, that's really bad. It is. But they were humiliating people who had nothing. That's the worst part of this. Imagine that you're a brand new convert to Christianity in the first century, and you and your spouse are household slaves. That was really common in the Roman Empire. But you, you, you serve in a house where your master is a Christian, and they go to church, and so you can go to church too. It's great. That's a great deal. And so you're, you're here, and you're in a place where your pastor shepherd has just preached a message this morning. He read a copy of a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Galatia. And now you've got a copy of that letter, even though you're at Corinth. And, and, and so your pastor has read that letter and, and unpacked some of the theology there from Paul. And that, that letter that your pastor just read and expounded on, Paul, Paul reminded you in that letter and your wife that in Christ Jesus, you're free. And in that letter that your pastor read, it said that in the church, uh, none of those social constructs define you or divide you from the other people that are saved by grace. You're like, wow, your mind is blown. You mean we're all on level ground at the foot of the cross? Yeah, amen. And the sermon's over and you've sung a hymn and now comes the love feast, but all the wealthy people in the church have already begun to scarf down their food and get drunk. And you don't have anything. You don't have anything. You're embarrassed because you, you don't have anything because you're slaves. And you were hoping that maybe some of the other members of the body might share in their abundance, but they aren't. They're drinking their fill. They're satisfying their appetites. They're going headlong into sin while participating in this love feast. 
this memorial of Christ and all he's done to secure our salvation by his own precious blood? It doesn't make any sense. Can you see how jacked up that would be in the church? How something like that could easily cause divisions in the church? James goes after this. James goes after this in his letter in James 2. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If a guy comes into the church, he's wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. He comes into your assembly. And also there's a poor man in shabby clothing. He comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and say, oh, oh sit here, sit, sit in this good place. And then you say to the poor man, go stand over there. Just sit down at my feet. Just, just sit down. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? James just goes after it. He said, you are, you are dividing the body of Christ. A preferential behavior. And go back to, back to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Verse 23 says, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the very night that he was betrayed, took that bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and said, this is a cup in my new covenant and my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul received this from the Lord directly or immediately after the Damascus Road experience. He had a long conversation with Jesus after he got knocked off that horse. Now keep in mind, this would have been a Passover Seder for Jesus and, and the disciples. And that's rooted, that practice is rooted firmly in the exodus of, of Israel as they were delivered out of Egypt by God himself. Remember the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night? But in the, this is beautiful, in the Judean tradition, there's also a parallel in the Passover Seder with uh, the Jewish wedding proposal. I don't know if you, you're familiar with this. See, a young man would... Uh, would desire to marry a girl. And, and what he had to do was get his own dad. And then they had to go to her house and talk to her dad. And they had to work it out man, man to man. And, um, and, and they had to agree on what was called a bride price. Now that sounds really chauvinistic to our 21st century American ears, but imagine that you live in an agrarian society. And you have to harvest all your own food. Now, a daughter is an incredibly valuable asset to your home. The, the sheer amount of work that she does around the home, to take her away from her family, you really need to compensate them in some way. It's just reasonable. You need to compensate them. This isn't buying a bride. It's compensating a family for the loss of their daughter. And so th they would agree on a bride price, and then, and then there would be a cup of wine poured and the father of the, the groom, the father of the young man would hand it to him and then he would go to the girl and he would offer her this cup. This, this is a covenant in my blood for you. Will you accept it and drink? And she could receive that cup and drink it or she could refuse it. And, and if she receives it and she drinks the cup, they're now betrothed. They're legally married, 
according to Jewish law, legally bound, but not fully married, not experiencing marriage yet. Here's what happens next. Here's what happens next. He goes back to his dad's house and he begins to build onto the family compound. It was called an insula. He built on a room or, or two rooms for his future family, for his future wife and, and any kids. And, and so he's working on that and he's just building and he doesn't know when because dad holds the keys. Dad says, when you're done, his father would look at him at one point and say, well done, son. Looks great. Go get her. He's waiting. He doesn't know the day or the hour. He's waiting. He's building. What did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you that you may be where I am also. See, there's a, par- there's a parallel here. That bride is waiting in anticipation of his coming. She's making herself ready as a radiant bride. And, and we're the church. This gives so much meaning to what we do when we partake of communion. We're, we've entered into a covenant with Jesus who's gone to prepare a place for us and has promised to come again to take us to be with him where he is and to always be his bride. It's an incredible uh, metaphor that we partake in when we take communion. Who there, who there, whoever, therefore, verse 27, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Paul says, let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. There's a danger. And I say this every time we do communion. There's a danger. If you are not a born-again believer, you should not partake in communion. He says in an unworthy manner. Well, what does that mean? I, I think there are at least three possibilities, maybe more. Um, it means if you're not born again, you shouldn't partake. If you are currently in willful, unrepentant sin, you should not partake. You risk judgment on yourself. If you are without introspection and without humility, you should not partake. In any of those scenarios, you put yourself at risk for judgment because you've partaken in an unworthy manner. What does it mean to eat and drink judgment on oneself? Well, Paul elaborates in verse 30. Look at this. He says, that's why many of you are weak and sick or ill, and some have even died. Well, you don't think God would do that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, his reputation and the reputation of his church mean a lot to him. But if we judge ourselves truly, verse 31, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. See, judgment on sin doesn't go away once you become a born-again child of God. In fact, God's a good daddy who disciplines his children. We've already said that. But now the penalty of sin that you that made you an enemy of God, that sin's now paid in full by the blood of Christ. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the discipline of the Lord, him judging and punishing sinful actions that you commit as a believer in Jesus Christ. And he will discipline his children. He will. Paul makes this point. If we would only judge ourselves, we wouldn't be judged by God. If we just take a little time and be more self-aware, a little more introspective about our lives, a little more sensitive to the Spirit when He brings conviction into our hearts, we could avoid things like this. 
but we typically don't, and we end up being judged by the Lord and disciplined so that we don't end up condemned along with the world. Now, when Paul says that, I don't believe that verse necessarily means that those who partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner will be judged in the same way that unbelievers will be judged in an ultimate sense. I think this is simply Paul's way of saying what our Southern grandma would say. If you just think about it and do what's right, I wouldn't have to swat your bottom all the time. You're about to get more swats than a tennis ball at Wimbledon. That's, that's, that's what he's saying. You don't want a whooping. You're about to get a whooping. Hebrews 12 says it this way. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Because in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, as children of God? He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. You know, we see something similar in Acts with Ananias and Sapphira. They attempt to deceive the apostles by making themselves look more generous and magnanimous than they actually were. As a point of clarification in that story, their sin was not in keeping money back from them, for themselves. It, it was their property that they sold. They could have kept all the proceeds if they had wanted to. It was theirs. But they lied about the amount they were giving to the church to make themselves look good. And the Holy Spirit wasn't having any of that, especially not in the early days of the church. There's another example where people died as part of the discipline of the Lord. It didn't say Ananias and Sapphira were not believers, that they were going to hell. But he, he struck them dead. So then verse 33, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. If you're going to scarf down plates of food, do it at home. So that when you come together, it, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. And, and I, just, I just wrap this up with a reference to Romans, 9, 6, uh, Romans 16, 17, where Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Paul says, avoid those people. Such people don't serve our Lord Jesus Christ. They just serve their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, and I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So let's wrap this up this morning with a syllogism. A syllogism is a logical argument. So you have a premise a second premise, sometimes a third or a fourth, and then a conclusion. And they have, to, they have to all align with each other. So here's my premise this morning. Here's our syllogism. Premise number one, God is love. Number two, God loves his children. Number three, love must include correction and chastisement. Here's our conclusion. Therefore, God must correct and chastise his children. So, so let's, let's go through this one at a time. Premise one, God is love. I'm going to give you two verses for each one of the premises just so that you can see that the Scripture supports this argument. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
In Ephesians 3, Paul says in verse 14 to 19, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, so premise number one, God is love. I think we have proven that premise to be true. That's number one. Premise number two, God loves his children. Well, what does Romans 8 tell us? Starting in verse 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. These are people that are being killed. And they're, and they're saying, Jesus loves us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present or things to come or powers or height or depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In Psalm 36, verses 5 through 7, let me give you the second supporting passage for premise 2. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness, even to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God and your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So premise two stands. God loves his children. Amen. Premise three, love must include correction and chastisement. Well, let me give you two verses here. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. You can talk about an unpopular passage in our day. If you love your children, you will discipline your children. Not abuse them. Discipline them. God loves his children. And that love must include correction and chastisement. Proverbs 13, 24. I'll give you Hebrews 12, 4 through 8. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, hey, listen, in your struggle against sin, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, as children of God? He says, my son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or be weary when you're reproved by the Lord. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. He disciplines, he corrects, he rebukes. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you like his children. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all of us have participated, then you are illegitimate children and you are not sons. If you came to Christ when you were 12 and you have never experienced the discipline of the Lord, you need to question the validity of your salvation. 
He disciplines those he loves. Okay, so premise three stands. Love must include correction and chastisement. So therefore, our conclusion stands. Therefore, God corrects and chastises his children. That's the reality. That's the Christian life. He corrects us. He loves us. He rebukes us. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. My question for you this morning is this. Where do you need to be disciplined? Where do you need to be disciplined? In what area of your life and your stewardship do you need to be disciplined? What part of your life right now is not lining up with God's plans for you? Where does God need to prune you? to use the imagery from the, from the Gospels? Or does he need to prune you that you might bear more fruit in the Spirit? This is the heart of our Father who wants us to flourish and prosper and to reflect his goodness and grace to a watching world. These are the questions that we have to be asking ourselves. And it's important that we remember there's a greater reward here. Don't settle for right now. Don't settle for contentment and happiness and and pleasure right now. We're going to have pleasure at God's right hand forevermore, Scripture says. We endure discipline. We recognize that our Heavenly Father is good and that His discipline is good and that it's good for us. It's good for our souls. Hebrews 12, 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. We've all been there. We've all been there. I can still remember some spankings. I got as a kid, unpleasant, but boy, turn me around, put me on a different path. I didn't want that. I didn't want that discipline. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. I'm not exuberant about the Lord's discipline. (laughs) It's not usually fun, but it's good. And it brings about his holiness in those who submit to it and allow themselves to be trained by it. And the Lord's discipline works for our good, that he might be glorified in our lives. He wants us to exhibit lives of holiness, lives that reflect that new nature that God has given us. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 1, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy, God says, because I am holy. You be holy. Because I am holy. And then we, we read this verse earlier, but I just want to end with this verse, Job 5, 17 and 18. Listen to this again. How beautiful is this verse? Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Again, we give you praise and honor for your goodness. You love your children. You love those who have called upon your name, who have put their faith in you so as to be saved. You refuse to leave us as we are. You are determined to sanctify us, to make us holy. And part of that process involves discipline. Lord, help us to be children who, though we, we dislike the pain that sometimes discipline brings, we would be children of God who would who would receive your discipline, who would embrace your correction. We wouldn't be stubborn children. We'd be malleable in your hands. We'd be moldable. And you would make us into the image of Christ. And that's our prayer today. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.